Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 408. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 408 you're listening to. And my guest today is Grammy-nominated mixer, engineer, and producer, Justin Cordelieu. And he has worked with Paul McCartney, Hollywood Vampires, Taylor Swift, Luke Bryan, Carrie Underwood, many, many others. And he's also worked with Bob Ezrin, producer Bob Ezrin, done some work for Chuck Ainley. And he's also worked with the late, great Mike Shipley. We're going to talk all about that. It's very fascinating. And he is located in Nashville, and you can check him out at justincordelu.com. Link will be in the show notes, of course. Looking forward to having him on. Looking forward to having you hear that interview. So, Justin Cordelu, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Allow me to rant about probably one of those boring topics you're ever going to hear me rant about. Financial planning. Many of you are going, boo, boring, not audio related, but I assure you it is. All right, so here I go. I'll try to be to the point with this. My wife and I recently have employed a financial planner, consultant, I guess, I don't know what you call it. Not a tax person, but somebody who actually looks at everything you've got in your accounts, in whatever you're doing that pertains to finances and advises you on a forward direction to help things be solid in your in your financial world. And many of you are probably telling telling yourself right now, well, I don't have anything, so I don't need that. Yeah, bullshit. Look, you're not always going to be in the same position you are in now. You want to grow. Maybe you're a studio owner. Maybe you're a freelancer. Maybe you're thinking about starting a you know post-production company somewhere down the line. Whatever it is as an audio professional, you guys know and I know we are not the biggest geniuses when it comes to money. I'm not trying to paint, you know, a broad picture, but honestly, let's let's just be honest with ourselves. We traditionally, us audio people, are not the best people with money. And if we are, sometimes it's the result of a spouse or somebody else in our life influencing that. So let's speak from a position of, of honesty here and just say that we're all kind of at... At our best, we're pretty mediocre with money. And if you disagree with me, email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com and tell me, hey, Matt, you're wrong. I'm excellent. And this is why. But let's presume that we're all like pretty mediocre. You know, we know how to bring in the money, some of us. And if you're having a hard time bringing in the money, that's a separate conversation. But let's just say that we're pretty good at bringing in money for the work that we do and getting compensated. We know how to bill our clients and... That money comes in. But really the trick is what happens to that money when it comes in? Some of us don't know enough, so we operate from a point of inaction and therefore the money sits in some, you know, like ridiculous savings account at your local bank gathering nothing. And as this inflation is taking off, it's looking even more like not so much, right? So a financial person, once again, not a tax person, a financial person comes in and looks at everything and says, aha, look, 
You've got this money sitting here that is from your studio, and I know that you've got this allocated for gear, but you're over-allocating. And therefore, you should diversify some of that money into this type of investment to make sure that the studio is going to stay in business for years to come, right? You, you sit down, you tell them what your goals are, your hopes, your dreams, right? And then they help navigate the world of finance with you. And it's a pretty interesting thing. And I've learned a lot just in the first few weeks of us interacting with our finance person, who, by the way, I'm going to try to get to come on the show as a primary guest, because I think that the lessons that uh, this guy could teach all of us would be very valuable. So cross your fingers, no promises, no guarantees. I'm going to ask him and see what he says, uh, because I think it would be useful. Okay, so where you live depends on who you're going to find. And you might need to reach out, like if you're in a small town and you're not feeling really good about your choices about a financial person, you might look into getting recommendations from people who live in other cities and they may have somebody for you. You know, if you live in a small town and you know somebody in Los Angeles or Nashville, they may know somebody who would be willing to take you on as a client. Now, this is where it's going to really irritate some of you. I know a lot of you don't like the concept of subscriptions, you know, Pro Tools subscriptions, uh, subscriptions to any kind of software. However, you're going to have to pay probably a monthly fee to this person. And all I can say is, is look, it's an investment in you in your future. And you don't have to necessarily stay with that person for the rest of your life. You could just employ them for, you know, six months and see if they can help you get things kind of up to a better point and then take it from there on your own. Because you can, you know, once you kind of have the structure in place of how to do it and the lessons learned, you could always take it away and, and do it on your own and then just have like maybe a once a year check-in with this person. Or you could keep them, you know, as part of your regular monthly thing that you do, shit for all the other things you pay for, you know, for different subscriptions. I'm sure if you got rid of a few of those, you could cover the cost of, of one of these people. Yeah, I know this is not a fun topic. Uh, and I know that the ideas of sharing your financial mistakes with someone else is a little nerve wracking because it can be embarrassing, right? You know, you, you've done, maybe you've done things like in a completely screwed up manner for a number of years and you're embarrassed to talk about it with somebody. But honestly, this is your chance to course correct and turn your ship in the right direction. Maybe you're 25 now, maybe you're 35, but you know what? Odds are you're probably gonna be 55, 65, maybe 75 and older down the line. And you wanna make sure that you've made the right decisions for the future. And you know what? Maybe you're 75 now and you're a little unsure of yourself financially. What a better time to check in with a financial person to make sure that you've got your shit together. So I'll leave it alone. You all figure it out for yourself, but I really, really want to express to you how relieved I feel and my wife feels that we're doing this. It's, it's definitely new territory, but you know, all the decisions all the bad decisions I've made for years and tried to turn around over the course of doing this podcast and talking with everybody and learning lessons from everybody, uh, all the decisions I've made about turning my life around in many aspects, including the financial aspect, 
have come to now a point where I feel that this is a justified expense and it's going to help take me into old age. I feel confident about it. So I want to share that with you to maybe encourage you to, you know, if you're on the fence, you, maybe you've been thinking about it, do it. You know, if you got somebody you're, you're, you've been, you've been procrastinating on calling that you know can help you, do it. Get your shit together so that you can keep doing audio for as long as you can and do it smart and keep your business in line so that, you know, we can continue doing the things that we love, which is audio, right? So that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and in a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Justin you here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. We're going to jump right into it. And 
want to start with where you grew up, which is in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Tell me about growing up there and playing trombone and and what your life was like there. So Greensburg is a pretty small town. It's in the Rust Belt, so um, it's just outside of Pittsburgh. So very working class. It fits the theme. Beautiful landscape, lots of hills, mountains. It's right in the foothills of the Appalachians. And it was pretty, pretty ideal place to grow up. Now, you know, I grew up in a small coal mining town outside of Greensburg in a very small three-road town called Bavard. We had a little group of friends that we played football with and, and everything. And there were a few, you know, just a few musicians in Bavard that we get together and hang out and, you know, play guitar. But I got into trombone when I was in, it must have been fourth or fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. And throughout high school, I started off playing with a marching band. I got in a little, I had long hair. I was in a band, in a shred metal band. <laughs> <laughs> and the band director didn't like that I had long hair. So I quit the marching band. He didn't really like that so much. But I was, you know, I, I hate to brag, but I was a really good trombone player. I played in some symphonies, some youth symphonies, and in a college ensemble, and then some honors bands and, and everything like that. And I was playing in the high school jazz band. And I didn't lie, but I, I didn't quite explain exactly what I was doing. We had a, a show, but I wanted to go see the Red Hot Chili Peppers with Space Hog and the Toadies. And so I said, I told him that I had a previous engagement and I couldn't make it. And then he found out I went to the concert and he basically, well, he didn't fire me, but he, he kicked me out of the stage band. So oh. I, I was just on my own. I, was, I wasn't associated with the high school at all. I was just doing a few ensembles in the town and everything. And then one of the conductors from the collegiate ensemble that I was in, she was the director of the Ohio Valley Youth Orchestra, and they were invited to play in Australia at the World Youth Musicale, and they needed another trombone player. So I joined them, and it was in Wheeling, West Virginia, where we had our rehearsals and everything. And I got to go to Australia for like two weeks. I played in the yeah. Sydney Opera House, which was incredible at 17, which is pretty amazing. So I played there. And when we were backstage at the Sydney Opera House, the only other orchestra from the U.S. was the Florida Youth Symphony. And the conductor came up to me and said, we need another trombone player. Would you mind sitting in with us? I said, yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. When can I get the sheet music and start practicing and everything? And he said, well, you better hurry up because they're doing a sound check on stage right now, dress rehearsal. So you better hurry up if you want to read through this music. So I was terrified because one of the things that I was not good at was sight reading. I would feel like I would always have to practice my part. And of course, the first piece that we played was a, uh, a a brass solely piece. So all the brass sections stood up. We played this pretty difficult piece. I forget what it was. At the Sydney Opera House. And I was sight reading everything. And luckily, it went really well. And uh, it was fun. I got to have double time at the Opera House, which was cool. The coolest thing, though, we, we stayed with host families. So I got to go to like high school parties and really get the culture of, of Australia. And I absolutely loved it. It was so cool. Wow. And we went to Canberra. We played at, at a college there. And then we came back to Sydney and we played it at the Sydney Town Hall, which is this beautiful 
beautiful hall with a giant pipe organ. And uh, it was one of the best experiences ever. So that kind of gave me confidence in my musical ability because mm-hmm. you know, th- there weren't many kids at 17 who got to travel the world and play music. At the same time, I was playing guitar. I loved shredding and anything rock with guitar solos and Dream Theater and Joe Satriani and Steve Vai <laughs> and Ingbe Mount, all those guys. Like I just couldn't get enough of it. And one of the best things was getting those catalogs in from Thoroughbred or Mars or Guitar Center wasn't quite the thing yet. Did you get Janner Music World out of New York? No, I never did. Oh man. That was that was my catalog. Uh but I would look through all this gear and go, I don't know what that is, but that looks cool. You know, or look at all the guitar pedals or all the I was big into Ibanez guitars. I wanted the the Steve Vai model with a handle. Was it the seven string one? It was before the seven string one. Okay. Yeah, it was just like it was so gaudy. Yeah, <laughs> that or the or the John Petrucci one with it was almost like a Picasso esque paint job. It was it was cool at the time. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So uh, in amongst all of the free catalogs and magazines, there was a mix magazine, and. I didn't know anything about recording. I'd never been in a studio, never touched anything. And it was it was harder then because you had to get a four track or an eight track if you really had the money. And it was just a, a whole different process. And I saw this console, which I now know is basically the one that's behind me, an SSL 4000. And it had a, a computer inside the console. I, I thought, what is that? That is insane. I don't know what it does, but that is like the ultimate piece of gear. And I want to do that. That guy's got a cool job. So yeah, I ended up going to MTSU because an upperclassman was going there and, and said it was a, a really good school for it. And for the audience, MTSU is Middle Tennessee State. Yes. Yes. Middle Tennessee State University. And it's just outside of Nashville. It's it's about 30 miles outside. Was that a big leap for you coming from Pennsylvania to Tennessee? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a huge leap for me because I was, I never saw myself not living in the Pittsburgh area. I loved everything about it. I loved, I mean, Pittsburgh's such a cool city. Like, it's beautiful, a lot of culture and sports teams. I, I grew up a huge Steelers fan, Penguins fan, and up until the the Pirates just decided to suck for eternity i was a huge <laughs> pirates fan or buckos fan you know but yeah i just never I, I could never imagine myself going so it was it was a really big decision for me to to move down south and you were in the the program for recording correct yes yeah and the way that it works at mtsu i think it's it's similar although not quite exactly the same is that you get a bachelor of science with emphasis on recording production technology. And then at the time you had to choose two minors to fulfill your your degree. And so I chose a minor in music and a minor in business admin. The first two, two and a half years, you don't even step foot in the studio. So I, I just lived, I lived in the music building. I was playing trombone, constantly practicing all the time in a bunch of ensembles. And 
the most fun was the the jazz band. And we had a killer jazz director at the time. And he's now at some big jazz school. It's like Northwestern or I forget, but but his name was Dana Landry. And it was such an amazing experience to to really dive in to the performance aspect on trombone that way. You know, I didn't play in too many symphonies or ensembles, but I was big into jazz band. What was your takeaway from the program as a whole when, when you got out of there? So when we started getting into the recording process, I mean, it was so unfamiliar to me. They were really good at building the infrastructure of knowledge they would teach you the fundamentals and the, and the basics. And the, the biggest thing that they always stressed was how to be a good assistant engineer, documentation, studio etiquette, which is huge. You have to know your place in the studio. And when you start out, you are at the very bottom. And the other thing that they, that they did that was so great, they had a fantastic internship program. And, and I think this goes with every other school too. The schools are good. You get your foundation, but then you still don't know anything. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it's not until you get into the real world and especially having a place that if you can get an internship at either a studio or with a producer or engineer that allows you to be in the control room or in with the musicians or see the the creative process, that is worth more than any degree, mm-hmm. in, in my opinion, in yeah. my opinion. So the, the first internship that I did was with Bill Vorndick, who sadly just, he, he passed a few yeah, months ago. Yeah, died of cancer, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, he came to the studio, which I'm so thankful for. He came to the studio, I believe it was early fall, and we kind of just you know, took a stroll down memory lane. Oh, do, this is recent to your current studio, which is, is it Soul Train? Yes, Soul yeah. Train Sound Studios. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So he came here and, because uh, he had worked here when it was Randy Scruggs' studio mm. ages ago. And so he, you know, he was blown away by the transformation. But then we just got to hang out as friends and really for the first time as colleagues instead of a mentor-mentee situation, which was really, really fun. And we FaceTimed with his family and everything. So it was really special to have that moment before he passed. But the the internship, I always called it like the Mr. Miyagi internship with Bill. Oh, yeah. He was one of those kind of guys, huh? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it was great because he he gave assistant credit for all of his interns, which was really good. You know, in some days we were putting a stone hearth in on his fireplace. Other days we were recording Tony Rice and Sam Bush and recording some of the best bluegrass music you've ever heard. And all of the sessions ended with, there was a giant fire tower that overlooked all of the mountains and you would watch the sunset. And then you come down, his wife would make a giant dinner at this big country table. You'd eat as much as you could. And then you go downstairs, drink some moonshine, RC Cola and moon pies. And a lot of times the bluegrass musicians would just jam out and you'd listen to Sam Bush and someone else just riff for hours. It was so cool. It was exactly how you should experience bluegrass music, especially from a Yankee like me. And it it sounds like a very uh, unique 
internship experience that is doesn't sound very typical to compare to other people I've I've spoken with. No, it, it and that was that being my first internship. I I didn't know that that was anything kind of out of the ordinary. But yeah, it was incredible. What a fantastic experience to have. And also the fact that he was so talented in engineering and producing, his acoustic sounds were unbelievable. He had a, an amazing microphone collection. So to be a part of that is great. And the first day that I was with him was actually at Backstage at Soundstage Studios. And Chuck Ainley was going to be mixing a Jerry Douglas record. And Bill had a bunch of DA88s. That's what he recorded on. And Chuck was transferring it into Nuendo, which is his favorite format. So I kind of met Chuck. I was really green and really nervous, so I didn't really say anything. But that was enough of an introduction that when my internship ended with Bill, just out of sheer ignorance, I called Chuck and said, hey, do you want an intern? And I know this story <laughs> because he mistook you for Justin uh, Niebank. Yes. Yeah. I, I called Soundstage and they said, hey, Justin's on the phone for you. And he picked up and he said, hey, Justin, how's it going? I was like, wow, he remembers me. This is great. Hey, Chuck, how you doing? And then... There was a little bit of an awkward pause when my voice didn't quite match up with Justin Niebe. And uh, I caught him off guard and asked if he wanted an intern. And he was like, I've never had one, but okay. So I started with him. And it was a completely different internship. It was much more... I mean, he Chuck was working on like Willie and Friends. No Moonshine? No Moonshine. <laughs> he did... Chuck did have a cart with tea and biscuits and, you know, very English because his, his wife is English. And I would have to then later on stock it with fruit and different snacks that were healthy and make sure there was ice water and more of a standard internship. Mm -hmm. So sitting there, that's when the studio dynamics part, as far as like where I stood on the totem pole, that kicked in. So I would always have to be cognizant of who's in the room, who's coming in. If there weren't enough chairs, I was standing. If there were too many people in the control room, I had to go in the lounge and just being aware of the environment. But sitting and watching him mix was pretty amazing. Yeah, what, what was your takeaway from him? Beautiful sound, great use of space, and he was very precise in his rides. It was the first time I'd ever seen parallel compression being used. He would run his kick and his snare through a through 1176s with just the bottom two buttons pressed. Mm -hmm. And he would bring them up, back up on two faders. So what, that's like 12 dB, 12 to 1 ratio, rather? Yeah, I think, let me look. The 4 and the 8, if, if I'm correct? Yeah, it was. it's the 4 and the 8. And I don't know if that does something to add more color, or because there is also a 12 to 1 button on it. So... I actually haven't experimented with with that, but it does sound cool. Yeah. Yeah, it was the first time I saw that, and his sounds were very, very clean. He he had the crane song, oh, I'm forgetting the name. It's the the compressor, the, the, the two-rack space compressor. He used the crane song a good bit. He used the Manly Massive Passive, the GML compressor, mm -hmm. and you know a lot of those high-end pieces. He had a rack of 
four 1081s and four 1073s. So he'd use the EQs on those. But that was the first time I, I got to watch a big time mixer mix and the whole process. And his, um, he mixed the uh, Mark Knopfler, Emmylou Harris record that sounds yeah. unbelievable. Like, yeah, just like it goes on for like forever. The, the depth, depth is yeah. insane. The, the depth and the width and that's, yeah, his use of space was so cool. And it was, it was amazing to watch that. And, you know, I, I wish I had known more about, you know, the mixing process so that I could know exactly what he was doing. But being in the room and hearing that space develop it, it kind of imprinted a little bit and just knowing that that's the destination piece by piece and that's just watching that process and absorbing it on some level did he teach you anything about working with people interacting with people and or did he teach you anything about the business of audio professionals i learned from him through observation and how he treated when Tony Brown came in, he sent me out to get the most expensive bottle of wine I could find and how to treat people in that, in the mix room environment. He was always willing to make mix changes. He didn't have many, but people always have small tweaks and everything. And, and he taught me the importance of proper documentation. He had a, a one inch ATR 102. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it sounded amazing. And every time we had a mix revision, you'd have to write on the tape DNU and make sure that it was do not use, don't use this version, it's an old version. And there was one that I did not label as DNU and they went on to the newer version and he, he saw that and he he was not happy. He said, listen, if this goes out, they might master the wrong thing and it's going to cost a lot of money. The wrong version might make it on the record and it has big consequences and it's just confusing anyway. So it's always good to be in a safe place to fail. Mm -hmm. And for me, I really, I really took that to heart and, and not just for documentation, but just overall making sure everything is right because I did not want to feel as small as I felt right then ever again. And one of the other big things was, and this is more of a conceptual lesson. So I was sitting there and I didn't have much to do. And I didn't want to sit and just read a book or just take notes all day long because the mix process takes a long time and you're there every single day and, and you're just sitting in the room listening, which is great. But then over time, it gets a little, little boring. So I found that his refrigerator, there was a freezer on the bottom and an ice maker. And every time you'd open the freezer all the ice would spill out because it had the wrong bucket in it. So I saw on the side of the fridge a number for customer support. I called him. I went into Chuck. I said, hey, Chuck, can I get your credit card? I'm going to order a new ice bucket that fits so the ice doesn't dump all over the place. And that changed everything. He recognized that I was thinking ahead and I saw that there was a problem and I just wanted to fix the problem. And that translates so much to running a session, assisting on a session, if you're assisting, I always teach new assistants or whatever, the session's not in front of you on the screen. That's not going anywhere. You find your spot and that's, you're fine there. The session is happening all around you. 
So you need to keep your, your head up, keep your head in the game, listen to the conversation. If they're working on a part in the second chorus or something, before they have a chance to explain to you what they want to do, you need to be already there at the second chorus, ready to go, track and record, and looking to see if the musicians are ready. And that's how you run a quick and efficient session. And that's how you get more gigs and just being on top of everything. So that one lesson and getting rewarded for that, I think helped me, especially when I got to to Bob Ezrin. Well, uh, I think also uh, just a comment on on ordering the new ice thing for the freezer part of the of the fridge. It also shows you're caring about what's happening in that session because you know maybe a musician comes over and opens it and all the ice spills out and they feel embarrassed and then yeah that could be like the one thing that day that really puts them over the edge in terms of how they're feeling about something and yeah yeah absolutely and or they could ice could get on the floor and it was a ceramic tile so someone could slip and fall and you know that would be terrible travis trick comes in and and somebody gets electrocuted and then dies and it's, it's yeah yeah it's, it's a whole cascading domino effect <laughs> yeah. and it's all my fault Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Well, so how long did you stay with Chuck? So Chuck... I think it was just like a six month or maybe it was even three months. It wasn't a very long internship, but because of the ice thing, he went to the general manager at soundstage and said, whenever there's an opening, you need to hire this guy. And so I think it was like two days after my internship ended, I got a call from Warren Rhodes and he said, Hey, you want to come in and be the night guy? And yeah, I was like blown away. I said, absolutely, I'll be there. Being the engineer or the, or an intern? Being an employed, they called it the night manager position. So I did, I would do transfers. So if tape came in, I would transfer it to 
if it was radar or Pro Tools or if a radar drive came in, transfer that to Pro Tools. So, you know, that was a decent industry, at least when I started, because there were all these different formats and, and it would all have to end up on another format at some point, be it Pro Tools or... Correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know if I have this right, but I'm to understand that there was a period of time where radars were really widely in use in Nashville. Isn't that correct? Oh, it was, they were in every studio. I mean, they sounded great for, for the time for digital, but everyone was so used to the, the transport and tape that they were hesitant to get into Pro Tools, which was so much more computer-based. And even when, when engineers at that time would use Pro Tools, it was generally just used as a tape machine and coming out one-to-one on the console because that's that was the the workflow at the time. So radar definitely fit that niche because you could record into digital with the same feel as tape with better converters than Pro Tools at the time. And then you could just digitally transfer it to Pro Tools for editing. So yeah, that was a big, big business. And then Pro Tools HD came out and that kind of, I think, that was the the end of of radar. I mean, radar lasted for quite a, a long time, and even those, especially those Nyquist converters, sound sounded great and still sound great to this day. But that's when you started seeing fewer and fewer radar systems. But yeah, that was a big thing. Yeah, yeah. So at at Soundstage, it was doing a, a ton of setups. We had six rooms in three locations, and I was the only guy. It was me and whatever intern would want to spend the entire night working for free and tagging with me. So it was great to get that job. Yeah. So you did that for, for some time. Did that take you to other gigs? Did you eventually want uh, leave that gig? I mean, obviously, yes, you did. But I mean, like how soon after getting that gig did you vacate? I mean, I didn't have much time because I utilized the, the biggest benefit. Because I mean, they weren't paying much. Studios were dying quickly at that period of time in the early 2000s. So there just wasn't much money to pay anyone, really. So I just utilized what I got, which was free studio time, as much as I could. So every single weekend, every single day that I had, I would find whatever room was open and whomever I could get to record and get in there and run a session just like it was a paid gig. At Soundstage? At Soundstage, All yeah. Right. Yeah, so I was constantly, every single day, I was working as long as I could on whatever project. And I think it definitely paid off because then, so I was at Soundstage for about two years, and that's when Crystal Bernard showed up. And right. yeah, I went in and was just supposed to punch in and out and not say anything. And oh, right, right, right. So Bill, didn't Billy Decker turn you onto that gig? Yeah, so Billy had... He had a a family engagement. I think it was a hockey game or something for his son. And so he couldn't stick around and he asked if if I could just fill in for a second. And so I went in and he said, just don't say anything. Just punch in and out. That's it. And I was so green. I was so young and so green anyway. You know, like I, I would say the exact same thing to some young kid sitting at the front desk coming in to, to do vocals. So I, I went in and I noticed that she was struggling a little bit. It was a few hours in and she wasn't very happy with it. She was getting frustrated. And so I started to, from those days of the free time that I had in the studio, kind of producing these, anyone that I could talk to or find, I knew a little bit about how to work with vocalists. And so I started telling her, well, why don't you take your breath here? 
the cadence, let's emphasize this word and this word, really enunciate these few words because it's kind of getting a lot, you know, just those simple things. And she really took a shine to it. And then she started getting really excited. And I didn't realize how late she liked to work. So (laughs) we were still going and it was like, it must have been six or seven in the morning. And I was like, Crystal, this is great, but I need to I need to go to all the rooms. (laughs) Well, not even that. I still had all my work to do for the night manager gig. So, you know, I had to take out all the trash. I had to clean all the restrooms. I had to turn all the, all the rooms. And luckily, if I remember correctly, it was just mixes. So, you know, it was pretty simple. I didn't have any big tracking setups to do, but she was cool. And she helped me take out the trash and, and clean up a little bit. And then I got a call the next day and I think Crystal wanted to do a lot more than was originally planned for and Billy didn't have the time and and so Crystal asked me if I wanted to do it if I wanted to engineer and finish up the four song EP and I said yes and then that turned into three weeks of 30 to 36 hour days sleeping four at a time <laughs> sleeping in the control room and and I don't mean to jump the the gun here on your your story but she was dating Mike Shipley. Yeah. And Mike was Mike was in LA at the time. Yes. And so it was about a few days in and, and she said, do you know who Mike Shipley is? I was like, yeah, yeah, I do. She said, well, we're kind of seeing each other right now. And, you know, he did my last record. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> Jeez, okay. And she's like, well, he'd like to talk to you because he's hearing, you know, the rough mixes and he thinks they're really good. He just wants to give you some advice. So... Every couple of days, I get a call from Mike, and it was super cool. We would just be on the phone for an hour or so, and he'd give me mixed advice. What was he telling you in those phone calls? He would just go through specifics, saying like, pan the guitars, you know, wide left, wide, like all the way, all the way, make room for the vocal, put this over here, add some reverb, like all of those kind of, you know, mixed tweaks and everything. And Honestly, I was so like starstruck and everything. I, <laughs> I I wrote a bunch of that stuff down and then I was just like, I'm talking to Mike Shipley. Are you kidding me? This guy mixed everything I like. Yeah, this this is as big as you get. Yeah, so it was really surreal. And then at the end of that project, she went back to LA and I almost fell asleep on the way home. I was so exhausted. And then I started another job for just two weeks at Treasure Isle in Berry Hill. Yeah. I just talked to Joe Carroll. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. Joe, Joe yeah, he spends a lot of time over there. Yeah. So it was for uh, Peter Coleman was the engineer who was mainly the, the only guy there at the time. Hmm. He was an incredible engineer and mixer also. And I was on a two-week probation period. So I didn't get paid, but I got to work to see if Pete liked me. And I don't think he did because I was so (laughs) (laughs) I was still so green and so nervous and they had a Trident console and Soundstage just had all SSLs and for some reason just because it was different I was like completely lost I was used to a much more complex routing and I didn't understand how just a simple console like the Trident which is as simple as you can get you know a split console I just didn't quite wrap my head around it and he was working on tape and radar, and I was starting to get more into Pro Tools. I was a lot more comfortable on Pro Tools. So at the end of the two weeks, it was the night before I started my full-time gig, if I was accepted at Treasure Isle, 
I got a call from Mike and he needed help. And at first it was just to work on Crystal's record. And he didn't have time because he was just slammed with, he was mixing everything at the time. All the, like Maroon 5. And I think he did a Keith Urban record and Kelly Clarkson and, you know, all those huge records. So he asked me if I wanted to move out to LA and work with him. Oh my God. I mean, it was like... I would have been on the first flight out. Well, exactly. I was like, yes, I would love that. And they were so cool. They they paid for my moving expenses. And Crystal and Mike both like went to the Valley and looked at a, a little guest house to rent for me. And they put first and last month's rent down. And like it, was, it could not have been a better situation. Well, and I just want to stop you for a sec because you're a kid at the time. Yeah. From Pennsylvania to Tennessee, and now you're going to California. Tell me about your shock of going to California. I could not believe the size of Los Angeles because I mean, and I had gone there once on a on a band trip before I quit the marching band. We went and we played Six Flags, that like a it was something stupid, but it was an excuse to go out to L.A. So I had been on like kind of the tour experience of it, you know, like a, a very touristy thing. But other than that, I had never, I had never seen a city that was so big. I'd, I'd been to New York once when I was like five, so I didn't remember that. So yeah, it was, it was quite the shock. So how, how old were you at this time? So I would have been, let's see, that was 2004. So I would have been 23, 24. Oh uh, my 24. God. Yeah. You must have been just like crapping your pants. I mean- to go out and be working with Mike Shipley, to be going to Los Angeles, I mean, it just, you must have been a little overwhelmed. That is quite possibly the understatement of the century. I was so, and here's, here's exactly what happened. So as soon as I got that phone call, I went to Borders right by Vanderbilt. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I went and I got Shania Twain up because he had just, that just, had come out the red the pop version not the not the country version i got that and then i got the cores and a deaf leopard cd and i went even though i wasn't working there i still knew everyone at soundstage so i went immediately to soundstage into chuck's room because backstage and it's still really good but at the time it had the best control room i believe in nashville it was it sounded so good in that control room with he had atcs and they were just placed perfectly it was so good. So I went in there, I listened to it, and when Up came on, I almost threw up. Like I w- like all the color, all the blood went like completely drained from my face. And I was like, oh my God, I am going to be working with this guy? Like this is perfect. This is a whole nother level of mixing and recording and engineering. Like I didn't know what to think. And so I was completely terrified. Now, you went out, you had a little place to stay that they got you. And if I Mm -hmm. uh, recall correctly, you were essentially like in a studio type house where there was a couple of you working. There was another assistant, correct? Yeah. So at first, Mike had his house, but he was going through a, a divorce. And so... Glenn would play studios in Burbank. They were super cool. And they set him up in, I think it was their Studio A or maybe Studio B. It had a tracking room on it. But a few months earlier, the Black Eyed Peas were in and someone left a candle burning and it burnt the tracking room down. So that was still under construction. 
so they could only rent it out for mixing. And Mike needed a place. And I think he was working on a project for Ron Fair at the time. So he was mixing there. And they set up a secondary rig and a little overdub booth for me and Crystal to work in the same place. So that was kind of an intermediary place. And then not long after that, Mike sold his house. And then one of Crystal's houses was in the Valley. It was in Studio City. And so we just got the go ahead to completely gut it and build a great control room for Mike for mixing. And then we built a little editing suite for me. So I would get the hard drive in from the label or whomever. And then before Mike would, would get the mix, oh, this is this is a little bit later. I had to have a shootout to get the gig because I had the gig with Crystal to work on her EP. But when Mike got really busy, he needed someone to go through his editing process, which was the Mutt Lang style extreme perfection editing, which it was a lot of work and it was total boot camp for me. So I, I did a shootout between three other engineers and thankfully I won. And so I started editing for him. I had my own little room upstairs and we set it up so that we had a KVM switch on all of the monitors. I could switch over to his monitor and then I had his two mix come up on an external on my room so I could edit and when I was taking a break, switch over to his mix and just watch him mix and listen. And I, I wasn't in the same room with him when I was working, but I got to like really try to hone my ears onto, okay, what's he changing? Because he was mixing on an SSL, right? No, actually he had just gone away from mixing on the SSL and he had gone completely, not completely in the box. He was using a fulcrum passive summing mixer and so the the summing mixer would then need a, a mic pre to to bump up the level so right. we'd go through a crane song flamingo and and then into a oh that's it an stc8 that's the crane song compressor that's what we were, you, you were trying to remember earlier yeah yeah so into the stc8 and then into a head crane song head to convert and so almost everything was in the box he had a couple of outboard pieces he had a, a pair of dbx 161s which are the unbalanced 160s with a white vu he had a fatso that he used to kind of parallel drums a rev 5 which he had a specific reverb that he loved on toms okay so yeah he hated the rev 7 but loved the rev 5 now you were with mike for a number of years and eventually he moved to hawaii Yes. And he had to let you go because I think budgets were starting to get cut and you, rightfully yeah. so, you kind of have to cut loose assistance when the money yeah. gets gets tight. So after working with him for a number of years, you started to work with Tommy Hendrickson. Yes. And you two would work on projects there in LA, but eventually, what was the cause for you to come back to Nashville? So we we did a lot in LA. I mean, we did because he was a very prolific songwriter and then also would develop these artists. And I mean, we would work all day long until we couldn't stay, stay awake anymore. And it was the recession. So at the same time as the housing crash, developing artists was kind of the bread and butter and getting deals and, and that sort of thing. But then at that time, Napster had hit hard. And so labels just weren't signing anything new, really. They were dropping artists left and right. So this was 
2007, 2006, yeah. 2007, 2008 or so. And, and so it was a really precarious time for the music industry. And especially when you're just kind of trying to start out and develop and get something new going, they just weren't willing to spend the money on something new that wasn't a slam dunk. So again, money was tight. Tommy had gone through a divorce and, and we, we were a team. So we had taken a trip out to Nashville just to demo up some songs and uh, it was good good for me to get back. I was kind of amazed at how much it had grown at that time. And then it, we came to one point, we had started a kind of a social media driven record label called Artists for Artists. And it was a fair 50-50 split. It was a, kind of ahead of its time. A social media driven record label controlled by the artists is pretty much what it was. And there were some investors and it was on the pink sheets. And what we didn't know is that even though we had raised half a million bucks or so, we didn't realize that the company itself, the, the shell company, had about a half a million dollars worth of debt that had to be paid off before we could get the money. So that tanked and uh, kind of took the wind out of our sails. So we're like, what are we going to do? And I was like, they're still making music in Nashville. Yeah. It's Music City. So why don't we go and, and check it out? And so in 2008, I convinced him he sold his house. He had such a cool house, but he sold it and we moved to Nashville. And the next week we met Bob Ezrin. And were you aware of Bob Ezrin's history? Before, before? I wasn't. Embarrassingly enough, I, I did not know anything really about Bob. Other than the fact that he produced The Wall, which, I mean, is a lot. Oh, my God. I know. Like, if you listen <laughs> to The Wall to this day, it could have been made a year ago. It sounds amazing. The concept is genius. The songwriting, the production, everything about that the, is oh, yeah, just all flawless. The, perf the performances. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Just such an incredible record. And if I'm correct, now it's not my favorite of the Kiss records, I must say, but... If I'm correct, he did do Kiss Destroyer. Yes. Yeah, he did Kiss Destroyer. and Some great songs, but honestly, for me, like Rock and Roll Over that Eddie Kramer did, that's the best Kiss record. Right. Well, and, and that was the thing. Like It was much more orchestrated, and it was a Bob Ezrin production with Kiss. Yeah. So I was never a huge Kiss fan, so I don't have a favorite one. Uh, but I have friends who... <laughs> I, I have some friends who like love kiss and some of them hate destroyer some of them love to I, I wouldn't say hate but it's not their favorite some of them say that's the that's better than the wall mm, I, uh, I i have to strongly disagree there i would strongly disagree on that the wall is such a a, a great record no disrespect to bob but you no, know, if, no. we're get, if we're getting critical but back to bob for a sec quite quite a an established dude yeah yeah, I mean, he signed Alice Cooper. He was not supposed to, and uh, he was working with Jack Richardson at Nimbus, uh, Nimbus 9, and Alice and I think Shep were just blowing them up, saying, hey, you have to check us out, you have to check us out. Which is interesting because at some point, like you and Tommy were working with Bob, but didn't Tommy go on to play guitar with Alice Cooper? Mm -hmm. And then, so then you became, were you considered Bob's guy? Yeah. So the way that it worked, yeah, Tommy did not like Nashville. He's Tommy's from Long Island and then went to LA 
loved the big city, loved good food, and and at the time in Nashville, unless you liked meat and threes and everything fried and barbecue, it was not your place. Right. Where, where you get some good sushi around here, guy? You know that <laughs> that's what he would say all the time. And at the time, you couldn't. It was it was not the same Nashville as it is today. So he couldn't wait to get out and. Bob was looking for a studio. We had rented a space and created a studio out of it, Tommy and I. And then I went up and I proposed to my wife on this big, long trip. On my way, I was driving home from Pittsburgh and I got a call and it was from Bob. And he said, so Tommy's moving back to LA and I'm taking over the studio and you're going to be working for me. So FYI, (laughs) like, okay, that's, that's different everything has just changed. I'm now engaged and everything else in my life had changed just in one phone call and one weekend. So yeah, it was pretty interesting. And I was never exclusive to Bob, but Bob had so much work and it was such kind of high-end work with amazing clients and everything. Yeah, I just stayed busy working on all of that stuff. Let me pause you for a sec. I just want to take a broad overview of everything we've talked about, really starting from Mike Shipley moving forward. Were you making a living? Were you comfortable with the money you were making? Honestly, no. I was comfortable with Mike. It wasn't a ton of money, but I was I, I didn't need a ton of money. Because you're working all the time. There's nowhere to spend your money. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it was that was fine. And then working with Tommy was so much of a risk because there was no guaranteed paycheck. If he got paid, I got paid. If he didn't get paid, then no one got paid. It was one of those deals. So we were everything was an investment. So we were working extremely hard because we wanted to get anything done. And we were so close. You know, we had meetings with Jimmy Iovine. He signed one of the artists that we were developing. And Tommy ended up being in that group as well. I was doing live sound for the same group, the Audio Club, at Nassau Coliseum. And we did a a festival at... It was a minor league baseball stadium in Fishkill, New York. And uh, it was pretty... That was pretty amazing. Was doing live sound... It's kind of a side hustle. I was just, I was a part of that team and Tommy was a member of the band and I'd done voiceovers on the, on the album, like speaking parts. I played trombone. I'd done all the editing. Like it was, I was so invested and I knew everything front, front to back. And it wasn't anything like huge. Like I would come in and plug in an eight track digital mixer that had all the songs pre-programmed and everything. Right. And then I just ride the vocals and, and the keyboards that were played live. Right. But it was something that I had never done before. <laughs> but back to the making a living aspect of this. Yeah. Um, it was very hard. There were some times where I'd get a big check in and be like, okay, great. That's that's going to last me for a while. And it didn't. So it was it was really hard to get by. Like there were some really, really tight months. And that lasted until about two or three years into working with Bob where I'd actually quit Bob a few times, but I couldn't find a replacement that he liked. But every time he would hire me back, it would be for a little bit more. And so there was a point with Bob where we were working on just a ton of records. Like like there was a Taylor Swift live DVD that I was mixing with Bob and doing the stems and sending them to Brian Virtue, who would break them out in 5.1. And that lasted a while. It was That was a huge project. 
Right after that, we did the remix, the 35-year anniversary of Kiss Destroyer, and remixed that. And then right after that was something else. And then something. We, we always had like two or three projects going on. So I was just slammed with work. And then I was making pretty pretty decent money. So that was great. So that's when it's when everything started kind of happening. But I had to work my way up. Up until that point, it was always like really, really slim. So you quit. You say you quit Bob a couple times. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when was the final time? Or is there ever really a final time? Well, it, it wasn't so much quit as... So th- it was in 2018. My partner at the studio now, Johnny Reed, he's a big Canadian artist. There was one time where I could have communicated better. I didn't know where my place was with Bob and it kind of soured things for a little bit uh, with Bob and I. So Johnny wanted to do a a record in Toronto and it was just a a fun project. He wanted to do, he called it the Island Record. And he just wanted to take his old songs and make them reggae just for fun. And he didn't have a budget for a producer, especially like Bob, who's not cheap. So he asked me if I wanted to do it. I said, yeah. And I thought he was going to talk to Bob about it. And he thought I was going to talk to Bob about it. And so no one talked about it. And, it, and I, like I said, I was, I was not exclusive to Bob, but I should have, out of respect, just mentioned it. Turns out we were on the same flight to Toronto. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and it was, there was, I wasn't producing it. I wasn't taking his client or anything like that, but the optics of it were not good. So you both show, do you show up at the airport and you run into Bob? We're sitting there at the airport and I feel a tap on my shoulder (laughs) and he goes, Hey boys. (laughs) Oh no. Oh, you both are on the flight. All, all of three of you were on the flight. All three of us were on the flight to Toronto and uh, busted. Yeah. That really messed up. And now looking back on it, like at the time I'm like, well, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't taking his job, but it looked bad and I should have shown enough respect to mention it to him. But I mean, I was also, I was a little, little scared of what he would say. He's a great guy. Like I love Bob to death. He's like a family member, but he's very intimidating and he is hard to work for. He demands a lot and it's got to be right. It's got to be perfect. And you have to anticipate. It's all the things that kind of a constant theme at that level of professionalism. But he just will make you feel it if you don't live up to expectations. And, and let me stop you there for a sec. Well, how does that compare to Mike? Because Mike also demanded a lot. He demanded a lot. He, he was not as kind of old school. Now, if you messed up, he would, he would say this needed to be right on the grid. It was five milliseconds off. You have to do better. Bob would go, what the fuck are you doing? That <laughs> Just scream at you, throw stuff at you. <laughs> yeah, there are lots of stories like that. And then when it was done, it was done. He was just a different guy, but there's maybe a little bit of shell shock <laughs> involved. Right. Super nice guy, but when he's working, there's a level of professionalism and intensity that he expects. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You have to stay 100% focused. And I would always, when we would go to different studios, have a, yeah, I'd pull the assistant engineer aside and say, first of all, I'm running Pro Tools because there is a speed that needs to happen. Second of all, everything needs to be perfect before he gets in. We need to make sure everything works and be ready and always focused on the session. If the drummer says, you know, maybe I should try a different snare drum, 
assistant engineer needs to be running out there and grab the snare drum and try to switch out. If there's a moment of hesitation, Bob will jump on you. And uh, it's, which is like, none of it is bad. It's just, it's very intimidating. And it's, it just raises your, your level of awareness in the session, which oh, is great. I thought you, I thought you were going to say blood pressure. And blood pressure. They go yeah. hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, you know, the, there's definitely some people out there who work on that level, who have an intensity to them. But outside, when the record light goes off, everybody's chill or they're chill. Yeah. And, and that's how Bob was, you know, for the most part, his stories are legendary. He can be the funniest guy in the room. And he always makes sure that I was taken care of, you know, financially. And as I gained his respect and trust, then I didn't get yelled at. And the people, the, the other people, you know, below would definitely get, get yelled at. But I, I'd lay on some grenades for some people if they were good and take, take credit for some of the mistakes. But it, it was definitely fun to, basically one of the times when I started to kind of fight back a little bit, that's when things changed a little. And it wasn't I was going to ask you, malicious. did you, did you ever start to push back? Uh, yeah. Especially at the end. And now when I look at it, so now I'm doing my own production work and, and everything. And I, I see it and I go, man, I, I, I had just, I had grown out of the role of being someone else's guy and, and probably a few years before I, mm. I had left just, I just, I needed my own creative expression. I needed my own decision instead of almost being, Bob is very hands-on. So, you know, even in the mix, it's constant conversation and, and everything. And, and I was just like, oh, I, I really want to find my own sound. I want to find my own techniques and be creative. And so that frustration was kind of seeping into, I think, my attitude of the last couple of years with Bob. And I, I absolutely regret that. But now we have a, a pretty great relationship. He's coming in, I think, in December with Alice. And he was in last year. And we cut the Alice tracks here at the studio. And and it was awesome. It was great. And and I've had conversations with Nico Bolas and 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 Garth Richardson. And we're kind of in part of this Bob Ezrin club. Yeah. And Dave Thoner also and you know, a bunch of those guys. And we've all been in the same spots. And one of the things that Garth said is, Listen, it's not easy. And you might be sitting on the back porch, drinking whiskey and saying, I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. <laughs> but Bob had such an influence and had and forced us to raise our level of professionalism and work and ears and everything that's involved. And we all got so much better and we would be nowhere where we are now without Bob. So it's a pretty cool club to be in. And it's it's fun to get together and kind of share war stories. <laughs> well, so nowadays you're still in Nashville. You got a new studio, Soul Train Studios. And yep. how's life? How's it working out? It's good. You know, the timing wasn't perfect. So we built this studio. It took us about two years. And it was such a learning process, an amazing process. I had full control over the gear, console, mics, who we got to do the wiring and acoustician and all of that. So it's 
such a good studio and it's like an engineer's dream. So to be able to work here every day and and share it with other engineers in, in town is is pretty awesome. So you're not the owner? I'm not the owner. Okay. Yeah, Johnny Reed, the Canadian artist, he's he's the owner, but we have a partnership deal. I was looking for my own room and Johnny had an opportunity to purchase this. It was originally Randy Scruggs' studio mm-hmm. and tons of legendary records have been recorded here, but it had gone into disrepair. It was in really bad shape and Randy was sick and wanted to liquidate. So Johnny was in the position to buy it and he didn't know anything about recording. He's, he's an artist and songwriter and producer, but he, you know, the gear and all of that stuff, he didn't know where to start. I was looking for a room because I, I needed to make, my own name and we just made a partnership like i can work out of this room i'll do all of my work here and then i can get whatever gear i want i had a budget to stay within and so that was kind of the agreement that we had and we opened officially in march of 2020 so that was a tricky time yeah to say the least yeah (laughs) so i was building my own career from scratch because the clients that i had worked with they were all Bob's clients. I never really had, I had never had to hustle and get my own clients for my entire career. So all of a sudden here I am in the middle of a pandemic and I have to now start this process of getting all new clients and making new relationships and all of that stuff, which was very hard, but we made it through. I made it through. And then in 2021, I ended up having a really good year financially. I started to produce more. I got a manager, Andrew Brightman, who's just been such such an amazing help to me and inspiration in kind of guiding my career now. And it's all starting to come back on track. And, and I can definitely see a, a really bright future. But in 2020 and during the pandemic, it, <laughs> I was pretty scared. And it's interesting too, you know, I mean, You've experienced life where you're working with some high-level folks, Chuck and Mike and Bob, and there's great rewards that come with that, as I'm sure you know, but there's also, as you also discovered, you didn't get exposure to hustling on your own. Yeah. So that's the con of working for guys like that, is that Mm -hmm. you're sheltered a bit to a degree, and you're also anonymous to a degree. So when you're trying to build your own name and you're getting out from under their umbrella, that's a challenge. It's way more of a challenge than I thought. So let me ask you this. As a guy who's, you know, like got this opportunity here at the studio and you're, I'm sure you're working your butt off. Is it difficult to balance with home life? Oh, yeah. It's extremely difficult. So I've I've been kind of switching my hours from working super late to going in super early and leaving at a reasonable time. Like today, I've got Cub Scouts with my oldest son. So I came in early and I'll be able to leave early. So yeah, it, it takes an understanding client to like say, hey, I got to cut out because I got to go do this thing with the family. Yeah, yeah. And my wife knows, we've come to an agreement that, if I do have to stay late for work because I'm, you know, it's work and we need it <laughs> you know, to provide for the family of five and three dogs and, you know, all that stuff that if I have to work late, I will. But 
the day-to-day work, especially mix, it's, it's just so much easier to come in early. I'm not going to get phone calls. I'm not going to get people bugging me. I'm not, you know, it's just quiet in the morning. So I get to really focus. I've been starting every day with a 10-minute meditation session, which is pretty cool. And it, it helps me to completely focus and be really efficient with my time. I have a process that I set up for the mix. So it, for me, it's all about being you know efficient with my time, scheduling, and that way I can get home at a reasonable time and spend time with the family. Well, this has been a great conversation and, and quite the journey for you. I've really enjoyed listening to, to this journey. And I want to make sure and, and guide people who are listening to the proper website. So do you think the best website for them, would that be soultrainstudios.com? So that, that's for the studio. Yeah, that, that'll kind of show off the, the space and they can check out and see what gear we've got. For me, it's www.justincordelu.com. Yeah, it's got a list of credits. As always, I need to update. <laughs> but there's, you know, my Instagram is also a, a great way. I, I try to keep up with that a little bit more. I think it's at Justin Cordelu. I'll put a link in the show notes to make sure that, that everybody's got that. Excellent. So audience, make sure and check out the show notes and you can uh, find all of that there. Justin, great to talk to you. Yes, great to have this you has on. been so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. All right, take care. You too. Bye-bye. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Justin Cordelieu here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Hey, I know I might sound like a broken record if you've heard a few of these shows, you know, all in a row, but hey, check this out. Workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. Simple PDF. It's free to you. Download it. It's bits and pieces of interviews from Eric Valentine, Andrew Sheps, Jack and Dino, and Steve Albini, and it's great tips that you can use to help your own audio career in terms of surviving. I think there's some great ideas in there. That's why I put it together. So check it out, workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. That's all for me today. I want to thank the crew, Anne-Marie Plo and the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Mr. Chuck Smith with his great voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And if you'd like to send me a message, you can always do that at matt at workingclassaudio.com. Until next time. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, 
you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. 